You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. When it comes to hope, we are frequently presented with a variety of options. We are invited to hope in our resourcefulness. Be your own person. Pull yourself up. Work harder. Strive more. Hope in your ability. Other times we're invited to hope in our family and the resources that our family provides and the reputation that our family provides. Our name in certain places carries credibility. And sometimes we put our trust in our reputation, our family's name. Sometimes we are invited to hope in Our resources, whether it's a job or an income or a network. Other times, we put our hope in our politicians or an agenda. We easily get drawn into scenarios that inevitably let us down. In each instance, and there are more, we put our hope in different things, in different ways, all the time. Relationships. In each instance, we are bound for disappointment. When we come to Hebrews, we find Jesus. And He is held before us as the only one who is the worthy object of our hope. The only one who can offer us hope that is deep, that is abiding, that is unconditional, that will not be decimated in any way. The problem is the distance between us and Jesus. We start out far from Him. And we don't have the ability when we come into the world to lay hold of Him in our own strength. We we simply can't do it. And that means He's got to do something first, doesn't He? He's got to take an initiative that we are fundamentally unable to take. And when we come to Hebrews again and again, we find the insistence, the testimony, the proclamation that He has in fact done what only He can do for us. If we're going to sum it up in one sentence, we might say that Jesus takes hold of us so that we can hope in Him. There's one thing to hold on to in Advent as we anticipate the coming of Jesus and Christmas as we celebrate His birth. If there's one thing to hold on to, it is the fact, the reality, the 
deep abiding truth that Jesus has laid hold of us. And in laying hold of us, he gives us hope. Now this central reality comes to the surface in Hebrews at the end of chapter 4 all the way through 5 in this contrast between human high priests, the Old Testament high priest, and Jesus, the high priest. So we need to understand a little bit about what is going on when the Old Testament talks about the priesthood. We are told that every high priest, this is the opening of chapter 5, verse 1, chosen from among mortals is put in charge of things pertaining to God on their behalf. We've already been told that we have a high priest in Jesus, and now we're getting the picture filled in of what a typical high, Jesus is not a typical high priest, he's a different sort of high priest, we're going to find out more about that in a minute. we got to fill in the picture of what a typical high priest would do. So every high priest we are told from from among, chosen from among mortals, is put in charge of things pertaining to God on their behalf. So in the Old Testament, the high priest oversaw the ministry of the temple. And in that ministry, he would offer gifts and sacrifices on behalf of the people to God. So if you were an ancient Hebrew person, you might come and bring your offering, and the high priest and the priests who serve under his authority would take, you wouldn't go into temple and offer it yourself, the high priest or the priest would take that on your behalf into the temple and offer it to God. He's able to do this, we are told, in a way that is gentle to the ignorant and the wayward. Right? So the people who bring their sacrifices are bringing them because they're broken. You only have to bring a sacrifice for sin if you're a sinner. <laughs> So the whole sacrificial system assumes that human beings are messed up, and I think we can all agree with that, right? Anybody not messed up? Just, for, just to be clear. We talk about original sin and all these kinds of things as if it's controversial and offensive, the fact that we're... But so far, I've never met anyone who was willing to say, no, 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 I've got it all together. Good sort of in theory treated as controversial. No, no, I don't want to say. Original sin sounds so mean and so depressing and so cruel and so just blah. Surely, you know, it doesn't acknowledge the reality of just the brotherhood of humanity and human goodness. And then when you go and actually ask people, okay, so, you know, let's talk about that in your life. I haven't yet met a single person who's willing to go, yeah, yeah. No issues here. <laughs> Perfect in every way. And if we met that person, we'd know they were lying or deceived or just stuck inside their own head. So there's this sacrificial system and there are priests who organize it and oversee it and it exists precisely because people are wayward, the text says. They're sinners. We've rebelled against God. He has a standard. He expects certain things from His people and His people stray. We walk off the path. There is a path of discipleship and we stray from that path. We are called to follow Jesus. We stray from the path of following Jesus. We chase after our desires. We chase after our preferences. We chase after ourselves. We follow our own hearts. Oh, this, is, this gets me. I was watching a movie with the kids yesterday. 
afternoons. You know, it's a good thing to do Saturday, overcast afternoon. It's supposed to rain, but it never did. Pop in them, you know, you don't actually pop in movies anymore. Anybody remember when you did pop in a movie? Yeah, right? Teenagers are going, what is he talking about? You actually had to get a thing and put it in another thing to watch them. Now they just show up. Uh, so we watched a movie, and there was a bit where you had that whole kind of like, hey, it's Christmas, follow your heart thing. Just do what feels right. And every time I hear that, because it's, it's ubiquitous, it's everywhere, it pervades our culture, I can't help but think of texts like Hebrews 5. He's able to deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. (laughs) You can follow your own heart, but chances are it'll lead you off the path of following Jesus. At least until he takes hold of your heart. So we need to acknowledge this reality that there's this distance that we tend to stray. We are prone to wander, as the hymn says. And so there is an advantage in the priesthood. A high priest who is also subject to weakness, who is also subject to the frailties of human life, who is also subject to temptation, who is also subject to sin, a high priest like that can be gentle with those of us who are also subject to those things. Old Testament priest, he's able to deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is subject to weakness. The problem with that is, he's subject to weakness. And so it's kind of a catch-22, isn't it? Hey, this person can care for you gently and pastorally and carefully and with sympathy because they know what it feels like in the moment where you have to pick, am I going to follow Jesus or am I going to follow my heart? They know what that moment feels like and so they they can sympathize and they can deal carefully in that way, the problem is they're weak. The priest too is a sinner. The priest too needs a sacrifice for his own sins. And the sacrifice he offers is for him and the people. And so in the priesthood, you've got this image of a God who's drawn near. Right? This is what happens in the Old Testament the Hebrew people were slaves in Egypt. God rescues them. He, he says, I've brought you to myself. I've delivered you on eagles' wings. I want you to be my special treasure. I'm going to give you my covenant. You're my people. I'm your God. And then he sets up the priesthood to sort of administer that relationship. And in that covenant, you see how God has drawn near. God has come close, but not close enough. The priesthood embodies God's desire to relate to us and at the same time declares that there is distance between us and God because you can't stroll in the Holy of Holies and live. You can't stroll into the presence of God and with the wrong kind of clothes on and with the wrong kind of sacrifice or just as a normal person. Your position in the community will not get you there. Your daddy's name will not get you there. Your income will not get you there. were people who thought, hey, my family's, we're the stuff and we can, we ought to be able to serve in this way, not just them. And guess what happened to them? It wasn't pretty. So they put their hope and their trust in all these different things and thought they could just roll up in front of the Almighty, the Holy One, and be cool with that. 
And it was disastrous for them. So the priesthood says, here's God drawing near, but you've got to remember this project is not complete and you still need a mediator. still need someone to stand between you and God. You still need someone to go in front of you because you're not ready yet to walk into His presence. The priesthood showed us how God has drawn close, but not close enough. So we have a problem, don't we? We have weak priests. We have a disadvantaged priest. And we need a more excellent priest. We need a more excellent priest who can bring us into the very presence of God in a way that anyone else is unable to do. And so, Hebrews presents us with Jesus, our more excellent priest. And He is able to bring us closer to God. He's able to bring us into a deep, personal relationship of perfect love because Jesus, as the author of the Hebrews puts it in chapter 1, verse 3, is the exact imprint of God's very being. The Old Testament priests couldn't claim that, could they? They were weak, they were wayward, they were sinners, they got it wrong sometimes. Because of that, they could only bring us so close to God. We need a more excellent priest. Jesus, when He comes, comes to fill that role. He is our excellent priest because He can bring us closer to God because He is God. He's God. He's the exact imprint of God's very being. He is the reflection of God's glory. He sustains all things by His powerful Word. And He is seated now at the right hand of majesty, the majesty on high. Jesus, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, shares every aspect of the being of God. He is equal in glory, equal in power, equal in majesty, equal in eternity to the Father and the Spirit. He is our more excellent priest. The Old Testament priest could bring God close, but not close enough. Jesus brings God closer than ever. There's still a problem though, isn't there? That Old Testament priest had something going for himself that Jesus, in eternity before the Incarnation, does not have. Incarnation is just the word for Bethlehem. Uh, it means to take on human flesh. It's a technical term for God becoming human in Jesus. The Word became flesh, Incarnation. Before that, 
We have a Jesus who did not have human experience. An eternal Son of God who had not been wrapped in swaddling clothes, who did not have a mother, who did not have brothers and sisters, who did not need to have lunch or have someone prepare his lunch. And so he is unsympathetic, at least in the experiential way that the old school priests were sympathetic. They can sympathize with weaknesses because they're weak. And so how does our more excellent priest, who can actually bring us into the presence of God because he embodies the presence of God, how can he sympathize with us? And the answer is, he takes hold of our humanity in every aspect. He assumes all of it. There is no human experience that he has not taken to himself. From birth to death, relationships, everything. He knows what it feels like to be criticized. He knows what it feels like to lose someone you love. He knows what it feels like to be betrayed. We are told, chapter 4, verse 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize. Old Testament high priest could sympathize, but he could only get us so close to God. Jesus, our more excellent priest, can get us all the way to God because he is God and because he was tested and tempted in every way, yet was without sin, he is able to sympathize with us because he walked into the wilderness and he fasted those 40 days and he was tempted by the tempter. He was tempted to hope in his own strength, wasn't he? Turn these stones into bread. He was tempted to hope in angels. Jump off the pinnacle. Your father won't let you fall. Tempted to trust in his reputation, in his name. And yet he insisted that he would only trust in his father. He was tempted in every way. He did not sin. That means he doesn't need someone to offer a sacrifice on his behalf like the old high high priest did. He is not weak. He is not wayward. He is the way paver. He carves a new path. That's why Hebrews calls him the pioneer of our faith, the author of our salvation. And so he takes these two things in his hands. The perfect fullness of the being of God drawn near to us. And he shows us what a faithful human being looks like. We're told not only that he was tempted in every way, but was without sin. We're also told that he learned obedience through what he suffered. We're being invited to reflect on Gethsemane. He prayed, he cried out to God, he offered supplications. But he didn't stray from the calling, from the vocation that was given to him. He insisted on obeying his Father, even though it meant suffering. 
learned in that way what it feels like to be a human being who chooses to do what's right in the moment of testing. From the beginning of his ministry in the wilderness to the end of his ministry in the garden, Jesus made the right choice. And he did it, we are told, with a consequence, with a result. That having been made perfect, right? How, having been through the gauntlet, having been through this trial and being faithful, he, he, he came to this perfect experience of what it means to be fully, completely human. He took hold of human life and was entirely faithful and completely obedient. And having been made perfect, we are told in verse 9, He became the source of eternal salvation. Jesus laid hold of us so that we can hope in Him. Because all of those other things in which we are invited to hope on a regular, even daily basis, will let us down. We love the people in our lives. They will let us down. We love our reputation. It will let us down. If we've learned anything in 2020, it's that all of the things we typically trust in will let us down. Jesus will not let us down. He has been perfected. He has suffered. You can trust somebody who will suffer for you. You can trust someone who will suffer for you. That's what makes him more excellent. Now it's interesting. Because the scope of that salvation is qualified. And it's qualified in a way that's somewhat counterintuitive to us. Maybe you caught this when we read through a moment ago. Having been made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation. We might expect it to say for all who trust Him, but it doesn't. You remember what it said? For all who obey Him. That's a little disturbing, isn't it? He became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey Him. What does that mean? What does that do to salvation by grace through faith? Is the author to Hebrews sort of promoting some sort of works-based righteousness or works-based salvation? We know that's not the case because in chapter 6 we are told about repentance from dead works and the movement from trusting in dead works to trust to faith in God. That's chapter 6 verse 1. This is called a basic teaching. Your effort, your works are dead. They will not save you. They do not avail before God. Just to read it in context. Therefore, let us go on toward perfection, leaving behind the basic teaching about Christ and not laying again the foundation. What is the foundation? Repentance from dead works and faith toward God, right? 
There's this sort of work, there's this attempt to sort of pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps to say, hey God, you know, just take a look at us, we're really swell people, we give a little bit, we serve in the various, you know, committees when they call and ask us to do it, and, you know, like, you're lucky to have us on the team because, you know, every now and then we'll even bring somebody to church with us, and, and, and it's really, you know, like, quid pro quo, I scratch your back, you scratch mine, right, we're, we're kind of, we're in this together, and we are told that those works are dead. Right? Because remember, there's distance between us and God. We can't just stroll into His presence. We need Jesus to lay hold of us. We need Him to, to grasp us, to, to draw us to Himself, to claim us as His own. And we can't take that initiative. We can't sort of just wake up one morning and have the bright idea that we should love God unless He has reached out to us, unless He has extended His grace to us to initiate this new relationship with us. We can't do that. So when we are told that Jesus became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey Him, we are not talking about the sort of thing like go home and make a list of all the reasons God should love you. (laughs) So what are we talking about? The author of this document, Hebrews, wants the recipients to understand That following Jesus is not a one-time transaction where you kind of raise your hand while everybody has their eyes closed and ask Jesus into your heart and that kind of seals the deal. And regardless of the rest of your life, you're good to go. Instead, he wants us to understand that Jesus assumes our humanity, lays hold of us, so that we can trust Him and hope in Him and have confidence in Him a faithful priest who has grasped us, called us to follow Him. And then we follow Him. We obey Him. Christianity is not about trusting Jesus in a way that has no impact on our lives. Trusting Jesus means obeying after Him. Following Him. So we need to ask ourselves, like, is there evidence in my life that I am obeying Jesus? Not so that He will love me, but because He does already love me. Not so that He will lay hold of me, but because He has already laid hold of me, and I hope in Him. And the embodiment of that hope is obedience. Am I obeying Him? Jesus lays hold of us so that we can hope in Him. And the expression of that hope, that it's real, is called obedience. And if I'm not obeying Him, if there are not areas in my life that are being increasingly surrendered to His Lordship, if I'm not committed to Him, it's very there's no evidence then that I trust Him. We obey who we trust. And obedience is a manifestation of trust. Readers 
are then urged to hold on to Jesus. And to hold on to Jesus in a way that strives for deeper, deeper knowledge of Him and a deeper experience of being known by Him. Let me just read some of this again. Chapter 5, verse 11, about all this, Jesus and His high, priest, high priestly role, about all this, we have much to say, it's hard to explain, there's a lot going on here. But you've become dull in understanding. <laughs> Again, he calls it like he sees it, doesn't he? By this time you ought to be teachers, but instead you need someone else to teach you the basic elements of the oracles of God. Right? So you've got the Word of God, some time has passed, you really ought to be proficient. You ever thought about Christianity as something you're proficient at? Like We, we, we pursue proficiency in our trades, we pursue per, per, proficiency in our vocation, we pursue proficiency in a variety of things. I'm not sure that we often talk about what, what does Christian proficiency mean? You need to, someone else to teach you the basic elements of the, oral, of the oracles of God, the Word of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is unskilled in the Word of righteousness. What does it mean to be skilled in righteousness? I mean, those are not categories we think about very often, are they? Solid food, however, verse 14, is for the mature, those whose faculties have been trained by practice to distinguish good from evil. So we get this contrast again, right? Two different sorts of followers of Jesus. You've got the kind who say, hey, I'm good with just a little bit of Jesus, right? I'll take my life with a little Jesus on the side, and that's plenty for me. A glass of milk every morning, I'm good with that. Don't need anything else. The author of the Hebrews says, there's a different sort of experience of Jesus that's more like a really big New York strip. And it's tasty, and it's serious, and you can take hold, just bite down on it. Taste the juices, and it's, it's been seared to perfection, and everything's just right, and it's the perfect temperature, and everything's there, and it's, you eat it, and you feel satisfied, and you don't come back wanting more because it's rich, and it's robust, and it's everything you want in a meal. And so we get this, this contrast between infant Christians who can only handle just a little Jesus and a little milk in contrast to people who say, I want everything He has to offer me. I'm not satisfied with just a little bit of Jesus on the edge of my life. I want the fullness. I want everything He has. I want He has laid hold of me. And I want all of my hope to be solely placed in the excellency of His person. And in the excellency of His character. And in the excellency of His high priesthood. I want all of it in Him. And I want Him to have all of my heart so that there's no place in my heart that is reserved for my own authority. So that there's no place in my heart where I say, Jesus, that's off limits to you. And when those places become apparent to me, when the Spirit of God says, hey, O'Reilly, there's this place in your life and it's not like, if we go there, you're not willing to say yes. Are you ready to lay that down? And my posture in that moment needs to be yes, 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 when it becomes apparent. 
There's an invitation there to kind of pull out the growth chart. What am I eating for breakfast? Am I satisfied with a drive-through? Or do I want that steak? Am I satisfied with a little Jesus on the side of my life? Just enough so that I feel good about myself and He doesn't get too terribly involved and meddle with things? Or is my whole heart every bit of yes to Him? That journey towards everything is yes is what the author means in chapter 6, verse 1 when he says, let us go on toward perfection. Scary word, isn't it? Nobody's perfect after all. Remember those old keychains back in the day? Again, this is uh, for only folks who are maybe 35 or older. Jesus or Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Remember those? Anybody? Maybe you had a t-shirt. Maybe I'm the only one. It was a thing, I promise. Late 90s evangelical subculture. Like, whoever wrote that keychain forgot to read Hebrews. He acknowledges our weaknesses. He insists on We need a more excellent priest because we're weak. We're not perfect. But then he says, let us go on. Jesus has more for you. And he's not afraid to use the language of completion and perfection and wholeness and fullness and this comprehensive, total surrender of my life to the Lord, to the One who has surrendered His fullness, who has sacrificed everything, who has descended from the throne of heaven to a manger of Bethlehem, who has walked the path of the Garden of Gethsemane, who has suffered for me, who has allowed His blood to be shed, who has nothing held back. If you were to go to Jesus and say, Jesus, is everything yes? He would say, yes, everything is yes. And then the question becomes for us, is everything yes here to Him? And there's a danger if it's not. Let us go on toward perfection, leaving behind the basic teaching about Christ, not laying again the foundation, repentance repentance from dead works, faith toward God. Instruction about baptism, like ba- ba- debates over baptism, we were told are basic and things you shouldn't like have long arguments about. Okay? Laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead is a like a standard baseline. Jesus was raised, you will be raised when he returns. We are told that is a basic doctrine that should be non-controversial. It's a given. Don't argue about it. Let's go to something deeper. Eternal judgment. And And we do this, if God permits. We'll go on. This is a work of grace. This full transformation, this deeper experience of the grace of God is only received under the permission of God. We cannot concoct it. We cannot manipulate it. You cannot manipulate an experience of the Spirit of God and His transforming power in our lives. 
But here's the disturbing part. It is impossible, verse 4, to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened and those who, and those who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. Let that sink in for just a second. Have a taste of Jesus. Life's going along, got a little Jesus on the side, feeling good about that. Hebrews wants us to know that all of life, every moment, is either progress or regress. I will be falling more deeply in love with Jesus and I will be increasingly surrendered to Him. I will be going on towards full, deep, rich, robust obedience or I will be regressing. Nobody coasts. If you coast, you are slowing down. I'm not one to begin guessing at how far people have slid. I'm not one to say, well, clearly there's a person who has lost their salvation. Sometimes people come to me pastorally and say, I've read Hebrews 6 and I'm afraid I've fallen away. And I usually say, if you're afraid of that, you probably haven't. <laughs> What's going on in this text? Because there are other places, like Romans 11, where, where we hear about God grafting people back in who have been cut off. How do we reconcile that? And I think what I think is going on here is that a couple of things. We have to recognize the reality, right? That asking Jesus into your heart does not mean you are eternally secure. It is possible for a person to enter into a right relationship with God and fall away. That seems to me crystal clear in this text. Because we are told about people who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy... Like, what does it mean to share in the Holy Spirit? It only means one thing. If you share in the Holy Spirit, you are rightly related to God. And so we are told about a class of people who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, but then have fallen away. That seems to me unquestionably clear in this text. It's a debate. I have good friends who disagree with me. That's fine. Second thing. It seems that it's possible to go so far that you never want to come back. I don't think Hebrews is saying that everyone who falls away can't be restored. I do think, because we have instances in Scripture where it talks about people being cut off and being grafted back in. Cut off and restored. I think what we have here is something like what Jesus calls the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Where sometimes... 
we fall so far away and we get so committed to our own hearts and our own desires and we're so resistant to Jesus that we can't be restored. Not because he wouldn't forgive us, but because we refuse to repent. When the Gospels talk about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, that's what's going on. It's not that Jesus won't forgive, it's that those who have committed this unforgivable sin are so far gone into their darkness they refuse to turn. And they never will. And our hearts should break over that, we should weep. And we should take warning. I don't want to be one of those kind of folks. I don't want you to be those kind of folks. It's a scary thing to me to understand that part of my job is to make sure you don't become those kind of folks. And that I'll stand before God one day as one who has been entrusted with the care of his people and give account of that ministry. That's why we deal with texts that are stunningly uncomfortable because discomfort is often a means of grace. Grace is not kind of, hey, you're a sinner, but let's look the other way and sweep it under the rug. Grace says, let's have ourselves, our faculties trained by practice to distinguish good from evil. Let's be given to Jesus. Let's go deeper into his life, further up, further in, deeper, fuller, more Jesus. The alternative, friends, is horrifying. Jesus has taken hold of us. With real hands, physical hands, Hands that bear the marks of the cross. Hands that have nail scars. He has taken hold of you. Because he loves you. He loves you more than you can imagine. He loves you more than you can begin to conceive. He has taken hold of you. And he has done it so that you can trust him. So that you can obey him. So you don't have just a little Jesus mixed into your life so that he becomes the central determining factor in all of life so that everything is yes. Will you go here? Yes, Jesus. Will you do this? Yes, Jesus. Will you trust me? Yes, Jesus. Do you hope in me? Yes, 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 yes. Let's not be babies. Let's grow up into Christ. Let's not get distracted by elementary things. Let's insist 
on everything he has for us, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the cost. Because whatever this excellent priest offers is worth more than anything you'll ever give up. Christ has laid hold of us. Let us hope in Him. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.